Um, you know, I'm just going to give you a quick heads up. Um, listen fast. Okay, um, this is the first time that I have done something a little bit this big, and uh, when, I, when I turned it into Michael, I turned it into Michael, and Michael has to deal with it, and, you know, and make it all make sense, and it's like, oh, that looks a little bit big. Um, thankfully, church didn't go over, as, as far as church goes, but we, we got to the wire. So I just want to encourage you in this and what is going on, okay? There's a scene in the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade where um, they are looking for one of the most precious objects on the planet, and that is the chalice of Jesus that he held during the Last Supper, and it was going to be worth so much, and if they could find that chalice, it would be so powerful, and they could do all the things, and so all through the movie, they think that they're looking for something like this, um, which is honestly um, the chalice of Abbot's um, Sugar at uh, St. Denis that was created. That cup was made in uh, 1137, and so in, in, in the story that's online, I mean, excuse me, that's in the movie, you know, everybody thinks they're looking for this absolutely majestic cup that, you know, Jesus, he's the king of the universe. And so therefore he would, you know, just be treated like the king of the universe when the truth of the matter is, and just for the record, that cup, I did everything I could to find out what that cup was worth. And it has to be absolutely invaluable because people talk about the fact that it's insured, but they won't say how much it's insured for. Um, they won't tell you what the estimated value of it is. Um, when the cup was created, it was not quite as bejeweled as it is. It was still gold and all like that. But um, when the religious organization that owns that cup got a hold of it, let me say it that way, they stuck a few more, you know, diamonds and rubies and whatever's on there on there. And so there it is. And, and that's the chalice. But the chalice of, uh, that they actually ended up looking for in the movie looked more like this. This is what it would look like. And we all recognize that, that this is what it would look like. And here's the deal. That's just, and it, it probably wasn't that one. That's just a clay cup. That's all it is. You know, somebody took a pottery class at, at EKU or something. I don't know. Maybe at Wright State University where I took my pottery classes. But, um, you know, somebody took a pottery class, threw a cup, and there it was. And it was just an everyday, ordinary cup. That's all it was. Until what? Until Jesus reached over and wrapped his hand around it and called it his own and said, This is my blood shed for you. And this is the cup of the, co the new covenant, take and drink. And suddenly, that cup became absolutely invaluable, okay? In all sincerity, even today, there's probably not 25 cents, maybe 50 cents worth of clay in that cup. But you put Jesus' hand around that thing, call it his cup, and put his blood inside of it, and then he starts you know, saying, hey, unless you drink my blood and eat my body, and it really gets creepy from there. But um, he said it, and, and it's like, okay, there it is. But suddenly that cup is invaluable because it's Jesus that takes what is common to the world and makes it invaluable in the kingdom of God. Imagine that he did the exact same thing with you personally. That the world would cast you aside, the world would not have any notice of you, the world doesn't care about you, and, and, and seriously, we've all been in some situation in this world today where that's the way we were treated, that we were nothing, we were nobody, we weren't worthy, we weren't good enough, we weren't all the things enough. Until Jesus got a hold of us, and at that point, even to the kingdom of God, we became something absolutely invaluable. 
Last week we were looking at the, at the idea of the three things that Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy, that these are trustworthy sayings, and Timothy, you need to make sure that you get these things into people's hearts. And we discussed that and we talked about that. But today I want to look at the actual leadership that Paul talks to Timothy about in 1 Timothy when he talks about the ecclesia. And the ecclesia is the word that means the gathering of people. And that's the word that gets translated church because church is not the building. It never has been. It never should be. It's not the, necessarily the organization. Ecclesia means the people that come together who are the bride of Christ and are invaluable. And there they are. So as I was thinking about church and, and just asking, I mean, just look around America today. Look at the way church is being done. And just begin to ask yourself, because I'm wrestling with it, with it myself. The churches that we walked into, and even this one, is this what Jesus would do today? Is this what Jesus foresaw when he said, I'm going to build my church on this rock. Is this what he believed he wanted to take place? And I'm wrestling with that. But there are some things that we can recognize when Paul tells Timothy, I'm telling you, when I left you there, put things in order, make things happen, and this is how you should conduct yourself. And we're going to look at that scripture um, here in just a second. So when we planted this church 13 years ago, and we launched and we began to grow, and the growth was just, I mean, it was really just a Jesus growth, but everybody that knows anything about church planting knows that that's not sustainable and it's not going to keep on going but we had to decide how are we going to do things yeah we'd like to believe that jesus said get together and just love each other and that's all you got to do but here's the problem what does love mean when the person somebody inside of the community of faith doesn't have means when they don't have food, when they don't have a shelter, when they don't have what, what does that mean then? Well, it means that the, the church has got to get together and do something. And as soon as the church needs to get together and do something, suddenly you're in a spot where you've got to create an order in which we will do something. There's got to be what's referred to as polity, the structure, the manner in which we will operate as a church. And so as we planted this church, the same thing happened here. It was all great when we were just saying, listen, Steve will take your kids out back and he'll keep them busy while we're having church and he'll do children's church, but it's just four square church out in the back of the thing and he'll make sure they don't bleed and they get a snack. You know, and it was like, really? That, if that didn't creep you out when you left your kids with Steve, nothing else probably would. Okay, but... The whole point is, as we began to grow, it's like we needed a children's department. We needed things, and we had to decide how we're going to do it. So today, today, I believe, this morning at least, um, that we want to look at the idea of why do we do what we do as a church, and why do we do it how we do it? I mean, you may think that everything in here is like, oh, so cool, pastor's up there, he's just got his slacks on, pretty laid back. Normally, I, I literally woke up this morning and said, I put jeans on every single day, even on Sunday. I'm not going to wear jeans today. I, that's the only reason I'm not wearing jeans today is because I just decided I'm not going to wear jeans today. Um, but we're, we're casual, we're laid back, and we work so hard at making it look so casual like it doesn't take anything. We're just doing this. We're not. We're busting our tails to make it. But there's a reason for everything. You come in here and the lights are down, and you might think, oh, look, there's a show going on the stage. There's not. The lights are actually down so that if you're in here and you're going to worship and, and you're like, I don't know, you know, do I, do I lift my hands? Do I, can I do this a little bit? You know, can I, you know, it's like, can I do that? It's like, it's just dark enough that nobody's looking at you. Go ahead. 
Not, if you want to worship, worship. If you want to worship like this, worship like this. If you want to sit down, sit down. It's okay. But all I want to get across to you is the lights are not down because we're interested in putting on a show and so you can see the, the, the monitors better. That has nothing to do with it. The lights are down so that you don't have to be embarrassed about whether you do or don't know how to worship in here. We just want you to worship. We want God to touch your life. We don't necessarily want to be the ones dictating how God's going to touch it. So in Acts chapter 4, Peter's um, talking. The church grows. You know, about 3,000 people come to know the Lord. Then 5,000 people get added, or it grows up to 5,000, depending on how you want to read that. And then as soon as you do that, you've got a problem because everybody's not getting treated fairly. And so I want to take you to Acts chapter 6 initially. And I want to read to you four verses from there that gives you an idea of what's going on in the church. Okay, you ready? We're in Acts. We're in chapter 6. We're at the point where they choose seven new people, and we'll talk about that. It says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained because the Hebraic Jews, um, uh, uh, excuse me, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So you know right away there was a food pantry, right? I mean, I'm not making this up. There was food. There was food that appeared to be gathered into a spot and then hand it out. But here's the problem. The, the Grecian Jews, okay, they were complaining because the Hebraic Jews um, were taking the first. They were getting in line. What appeared to be happening was people were being segregated. And I'm just telling you, we're in the church of Jesus Christ, and the ideas of segregation are anti-biblical. You can't separate the Grecian women from the Hebraic women. You can't do that. There's just women. But the problem was there was something going on and the structure was broken. And as a result of that, there was a problem. And people were being hurt in their feelings and probably starving. So the 12, the 13 plus 1 minus 1, can we do that? Okay, you know, one went out and hung himself. So then they had to get another one. So there was 12, but there was really 13. But now there's only 12 again. Okay, just stay with me. I'm a professional. I know what this says. Okay, okay. The 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word um, of God in order to wait on tables. And I was just thinking about that in the first service. And I thought, man, that's just a little heady. That's just a little, I mean, I'm just going to choose to be gracious about that and, and determine that that's the way it's translated into the English because it honestly looks a little like they think they're better than everybody. We're too good for this. It, we're the disciples. It would not be good for us to do this, okay? We have got to do this other stuff, so some of you little people need to do this. It's like, it's like I know that's not what that means. But it kind of just felt that way. I, I think everybody in the, in the church of Jesus Christ is important. You take out the littlest wheel that nobody sees, and a clock will stop. It will just stop. And it doesn't have to be on the face of the clock. It's the littlest wheel. And so I think it's important. So let's just be gracious to this thing. So they stood up and said, Brothers, choose seven, among, uh, seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. That was, that was the, the qualifications. 
Are the people you're choosing full of the Spirit and wisdom? And we're going to turn the food pantry, this responsibility, over to them. And we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And that's the initial scripture that I want to share with you because that's what's going on. Okay, The church had grown to such a point that they had to decide who was going to do what. They began to make roles for people in the church. And I just want to tell you that as the pastor, as the senior and founder passing of this church, I am no better than anybody else in this church. I just have a different role. That's it. That's the only thing that's going on here, okay? Um, and we'll talk about that as we go, and you'll probably see that, okay? But as we look at this passage, we recognize that the older, original group is the elders, and they needed to give their attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And understand that whenever you're reading in your New Testament, that they, they looked to the Word, they taught the Word, they shared the Word, they were not talking about the New Testament at all. They were only talking about the Old Testament, and they were trying to show people how the Old Testament spoke to the coming of the Messiah and the resurrection of the Messiah, the crucifixion of the Messiah, and, and the, um, paying for our sins by the Messiah so that we could all come back to God our Father. And so that's what the word was that they were ministering back then because they were living the word at that time and it hadn't been written in those days. And so we have this group, the original one, that is, becomes the elder group. And then we have a new group of seven men that were going to be in, in charge initially of running the food bank. They had a Hope Food Pantry just like us. And they say that copying is the best form, uh, imitation is the best form of, of you know, flattery. It's like they just wanted to be like Vineyard. Um, and so they did. They made a food pantry, and they put Stephen and some other guys, six other guys, in charge of it. Hence, and I don't want to go any further than that, hence we see elders and deacons in the New Testament in the followers of the way. That's what they used to be called until later on in the book of Acts. They were followers of the way because Jesus was referred to as the way. Okay, They didn't call themselves the church, and they did not call themselves Christians. Believe it or not, that is an, a derogatory term like saying appellation. See, it's not appellation. It's Appalachian. See, I said Appalachian one time in a crowd. And I got lined out by an Appalachian. And so now I find myself correcting people that say Appalachian. It's Appalachian in all reality. And so that's what we've got going on here, okay? Paul writes to Timothy, and he talks about setting up the structure of the gathered people. We call it the church. Paul suggests that there should be bishops, there should be deacons, and there should be elders. And I just want to look at this really quick. Um, the overseer, or, you know, because the Scripture says if you desire the office of an overseer, that, that's bishop. That's what that means. It's episkopos. It means to watch over or to look over, to oversee things. That's very, very important. Paul tells Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying. He says, this is what you need to help remember. Whoever aspires to be an overseer, okay, episkopos, desires a noble task. You can give your life to being an overseer, <coughs> okay? And so that's the overseer. And later on, he talks about deacons, and the word there is diaconus, okay? And that means to serve. It means a servant. It means trustee, trustee, hospitality, food pantry, physical operations of the congregation. But it means somebody who serves. A deacon, diaconus, means this is a servant. And as a servant, they serve something, somebody, some way. They serve. And so then you have deacons who are serving. And then you have the word elders in the Greek, which is translated presbyteros, okay? And that simply means, in the rawest forms, older or senior. It has a lot to do with the chronology of your actual age, 
Okay, And it says the elders, Paul tells Timothy, the elders who direct the affairs of the church are well worthy of double honor, especially those whose, preaching, whose work is preaching and teaching. For Scripture says, don't muzzle an ox while it's treading, from the grain, or treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain the accusation against an elder unless it is brought to you by two or three witnesses. So there's kind of, kind of rules there in interacting with elders as well. And we will see, um, if you read Scripture, you'll recognize that overseer and elder, those two phrases okay, um, are used synonymously. So episkopos and presbyteros are used synonymously in the New Testament. And here's the deal. Episkopos is where you get the term episcopal, like an episcopal church. And it speaks to the structure of the church the way Methodism or method speaks to the way of the Methodist church. Okay? And then you've got presbyteros or elders, which speaks to the way the Presbyterian church is actually structured. It speaks to it. And so we look at this thing and the idea of an Episcopal or a, a gathering of people where the leadership's responsibility is to watch over them is referred to as a Moses model of leadership. Okay? It's referred to a Moses model. Let me share with you why. Because in the book of Exodus chapter 18 beginning in verse 13, we have this story. And I want you to be mindful of the fact that Moses is following God and yet his father-in-law is a pagan. An absolute, dead to rights, doesn't want to worship your God, but appears to have a lot of respect for Moses' God and Moses' adoration of his own God. But he's still a pagan, and we don't have anything that says, and so he, he forsook his gods and, you know, worshipped Moses' God. We never have that picture that I'm aware of. Okay? But look at this. The next day Moses took his seat to serve as a judge for all the people. Now when it says all the people, remember... Most theologians will share with you, most commentaries will share with you, there's about 1.6 million people left Egypt and are wandering around in the wilderness. Okay? Just so just, let's just say a million and a half people. Okay? So Moses took his seat to serve as judge for a million and a half people, and they stood around him from morning till night. I cannot imagine the emails that poor guy got. I just cannot. I know what it's like with 350 people. Okay? He's got a million and a half people that have an opinion on what he is doing right and what he is doing wrong. And when his father-in-law saw that Mo what Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Remember, at this time, there's no Bible. There's not even the Old Testament Bible. Moses is going to write the book of Genesis for us. But here's the deal. He has a personal relationship with God where he knows what God wants to say to the people to tell us how we're supposed to live. And so as people are bumping heads with each other over political issues and all kind of other issues, they're bringing them to Moses saying, Moses, we got a problem. And Moses is trying to sort out whose dogs pooped on whose person's lawn for one and a half million people. That is absolutely nuts. And so we have this picture. Moses said, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me, and I decide between the parties, and I inform them of God's decrees. He teaches them about God and God's instructions. So as problems arise, he's teaching people about what God says. And he's trying to get the word out rather than holding Sunday school. It would be a, it just, it's a lot smarter to me in my head if he would just hold Sunday school. But he can't because he's too busy solving their problems, okay? And so it goes on. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out, you think? 
The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. And I'm just going to tell you right now, I believe that that should say you should not handle it alone. Because we see that any time that one person has all the power, there's the potential for way too many problems. And Moses needed to get rid of some of the authority. You can't just give roles away without giving the authority and the power away as well. You have to. Otherwise, you're just micromanaging. And Mike, Moses wasn't going to live long if he did that. Verse 19, listen to me now and I will give you some advice. Remember, this is a pagan. Listen, I'm going to give you some pagan advice and may God be with you. I love that he says God, capital G, no S. May your God be with you, Moses, okay? You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions. There it is. Start a Sunday school, Moses. Come on. You know, teach them the songs. Show them the way that they are to live and how they are to behave. And I underlined all of this in my stuff. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men, who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all time. Have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases... They can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law, did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel, made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided for themselves. And then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way and Jethro returned to his own country. And so you've got this picture. And isn't it amazing that we can see right here that Moses is saying that you should break all the people up into, are you ready for this? I am a professional and I did not plan this, but it happened on small groups Sunday. Break the people up into small groups. Isn't that crazy? That Moses was told that if you will break the people up into small groups, give authority to the small group leaders to minister and be lay pastors, you will be able to survive leading one and a half million people. And Moses went ahead and did it. Wow. And it was a pagan that told him to do it. Is that not crazy? I love this. It's referred to as the Moses model of leadership. And it's the way in which we planted this church. And in a nutshell, it works like this. God calls a leader. God surrounds that person with gifted people. Then the group is broken up into smaller groups and each one has a lay leader. So in our church, that is incredibly important. And we planted this church that way because we are not interested in being this massive, great, big, giant church. We are interested in being a church, I don't know if you heard Pastor Jeff say this, a church of small groups. Because one guy, Jesus proved it, doesn't minister to 900 million people and have personal relationships with them. He ministers to 12 and sends them out by pairs. He ministers to 72, but sends them out by pairs. But he keeps his close group close, Peter, James, and John. Constantly, over and over in the scripture, you hear reference that Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him. Peter, James, and John did this with Jesus. That doesn't mean he was ignoring the 12. He had the big crowd that followed him. He had the disciples, and he had the intimate crowd that he poured into as much as he possibly could. Because that's how you win. You give away power and you give away the authority that goes with it. 
And that's what Moses was doing. And that's why when we planted this church, we decided if we're going to be a successful church, we need to be a church of small groups, not a church with small groups. Many a person has come into this church and never gotten into a small group and said, man, I just don't feel connected. I'm just not meeting people. It's like this church was designed for you to get connected and meet people in a small group. It was intentionally done that way. Many a person is coming here. I had one person just walk right up to me and said, I've been coming here for two years, and, and I just still feel all alone. I said, so for two years, have you like gotten outside of yourself and went and met somebody? And they said, well, no. I said, what have you been doing for two years? They said, well, I come in and I stand over there and nobody talks to me. I said, are you a new Christian? They said, no, I'm not a new Christian. I said, how long have you been a Christian? About 15 years now. I said, well, as a Christian, don't you think it's your responsibility to go meet people? Well, yeah, I never thought about that. But I'm an introvert. Well, so am I. That's not a joke. My therapist will tell you that. My therapist told my wife that. Your husband's an introvert. She said, I know, but I don't see it. It's like, this is his escape from introversion. He is hiding by being out the front. But when it shuts down, it shuts down. Point being, this church was designed for you to prioritize small group so that you could get connected and you could have somebody that you could reach out to imme immediately in the midst of a crisis. And then if that crisis is bigger than the small group leader or the small group can handle, then they contact me. And we get some people together and we say, how can we help them? So when we planted this church, we planted this as a senior pastor. Lexington Vineyard contacted me and said, hey, would you pastor a church? We want to plant a church and, and we want to do this thing. And so I said, yeah, I'll be happy to do that after we prayed, fasted, and, and a couple of months went by and we worked our way through it. Okay? And so, and so we said, yeah, we'll do that. And then in the midst of everything that was going on and the church was growing and it was getting ridiculous, we needed an executive pastor to handle all things that were not the things that I was dealing with, uh, all the businessy things that I'm just not always the best at. And so we hired uh, Pastor Janice. And Pastor Janice hands, handles a lot of things, and she handles discipleship, small groups. She writes discipleship. I think she's on her 18th book, Bible study book that she's written. They used to get sold through Vineyard USA when Vineyard had a more um, centralized um, um, I don't know what you want to call it, but place where you could get uh, resources like that. And so um, it, it's been crazy amazing and wonderful. And now she's got a team around her that helps her write things, and it's called the Writing Collective, the Vineyard Writing Collective. I, it sounds like magic um, to me. It's like, I want to sit in on that meeting because do they like sprinkle fairy dust or what? The, it's a writing collective. Who ever heard of that before? And um, I sit on it. It's like, okay, a bunch of people to just write questions. That's good. And write ideas and have great ideas. And they're amazing people. They're amazing people. And then we hired Pastor Jeff, and you saw him up here doing an announcement. He's not just an announcement guy. Um, he busts his tail, and, and he is over all things student ministry, but he was specifically um, directed toward college ministry. How do we continue to grow our college ministry here? Because it used to be massive before COVID, and now we need to bring it back up. And so he's doing that. At the same time, he looks over our um, student ministries, our, our uh, high school and middle school school ministries. He oversees that as well. And then all of them, when they got hired, got this little line at the very end of everything that they did, and it gets thrown back in my face every once in a while, and I mean that in a good way, don't everybody do this, and other duties as assigned by pastor. <laughs> so when one of them says to me, do I have to do that? And all of a sudden they say, oh yeah, 
and other duties as assigned by pastors. It's like, yep, there it is right there. So this is the leadership team, the pastoral leadership team team of this church. All of them are licensed at least to marry and bury. All of them um, can do um, all wonderful things in the name of Jesus Christ on behalf of the kingdom of God. Okay? They're professionals. They can do it. Not that you're not, but they can do that. Okay? And then from there, we go down to what we call directors in this church. We have various directors in this church. You might call them deacons in the scripture, but we call them directors. On the one hand over here, you saw her up front leading us. She's been here for a couple of years. Her name is MJ White. Her real name is Michaela, but don't tell her I told you. Okay, but her name is MJ. Well, some of you really think that her real name is two initials. You really do, and it's not. It, she has a real name. Um, but we call her MJ because we absolutely love her so much, and she does an absolutely amazing job of leading us in worship. And she is the director of worship at the Vineyard Community Church. And next to her is the guy that keeps me on and has not pushed the button yet today to blank me out in front of you or to silence me from what I've been saying, uh, Michael Cannon. Michael Cannon keeps this place running. Michael Cannon makes everything happen inside of this room. He is specifically responsible for video production, production, and all kinds of other things that we give him. But when we take this whole thing in a couple of weeks and we go down to the park in um, Richmond on Lancaster, um, Michael will make sure all of this comes, works, and happens so that we can have church all together one day, one tribe, um, one God. And so we're going to do that um, in the middle of September. That's on the stuff you can find at vineyardrichmond.com, but it's coming. We'll continue to announce about it. But Michael does all of that IT and even more uh, for us. He physically hangs things from the ceiling that you can't see because the lights will blind you if you look up. <laughs> Next to her is Kim Heilman. If you do have children, then I'm sure you've met Kim. She is our children's director, okay? Again, a responsibility in the Scripture as a deacon, deaconess, whatever you want to call. Um, she is the children's director. She manages and has the authority to manage that department. Um, we have a little struggle here because she has an absolutely beautiful little daughter named Claire Jane, um, and she is just a little sassy thing that is wonderful to have around. Um, but then... A, she went and got pregnant again, and now they're going to have another baby. And, you know, I hate that. Uh, you know, I wish some of these young people would talk to me ahead of things like this, but they don't. And consequently, they're going to have another baby. Um, her husband was over here on this side of the stage this morning. Um, she's done a great job, but now she wants to stay home with her babies. Yeah, everybody at the same time, ready? Oh, man. But that's good. Because next to her in the picture is my friend Candy Worley, who I have known since 2003. And the church that I came out here to um, be a part of and to help grow, she was the children's director and has been the children's director for like forever there, um, helping in various ways, and uh, has been attending our church for the last while and has been getting plugged in, and her daughter's been getting plugged in, and she has agreed to come on in mid-October when Kimberly needs to start staying home in anticipation of the birth um, of her baby. Um, and so Candy is coming on as our children's director, and she has years and years of experience and trust from us, and we're so excited for what that is going to mean for us as a congregation. And then next to her is Sarah McFerrin, and Sarah is the person that you will see if you walk into the church, well, on Sunday morning after 8 o'clock when her day starts. Um, you'll see her in the admin office, or you'll see her up here behind a keyboard. Um, and then Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, you'll see her in the admin office, and she just makes sure that we don't lose our ever-loving minds. She makes sure that everything is filed 
child cry. More than that, she looks at things and says, do you people even know how to spell? Um, do you people even know how to use a comma? Um, do you, pe you people are old, you know, because we just hand off this stuff to younger people now. And it's just like they know what they're doing. And we are absolutely amazed and grateful um, for Sarah's gifting to be used here at this time. Um, and then uh, I didn't get a picture of him and his wife. I got a picture of him. But Jay is actually the director of our, our high school and middle school ministry. And him and his wife do that together. And uh, with a team of people, and some of you help as well. And that has been amazing as well. This list goes on and on to hospitality, facilities, uh, Hope Food Pantry, First Connections, the prayer team, our major leaders, uh, directors in this church are Bruce Wither, who um, manages our prayer team, Evan Worrell, who is our welcome team leader, the person responsible for greeting you at the front door and having information available, Brittany Tackett. I mean, I know you sometimes think that that coffee just appears and makes itself, but believe it or not, her team does that, whether it's iced coffee or whatever coffee, they are using their gifts and their times and their talents, and they just continue to make things appear when things run out, and that's the way that that one is. And then uh, most recently, you have seen last week uh, Brianna Holderbaum's um, video, and you have seen what's going on across the um, aisle in the um, Hope Food Pantry, and that is growing. I'm made to understand that there were like 31 families that came in this past Saturday morning. Um, if I can say that out loud, you are rocking it, Hope Food Pantry team. Yeah. 31 families. Um, but what that means is, <laughs> Mother Hubbard said, the cupboard is bare, okay? So please do me a favor, and on your way out, stop at First Connections, grab the sheet that has the list from Hope Food Pantry, and please um, fill that back up, because here's the deal. We can only give away what you bring in. That, that, that's kind of where we are. Um, we have budget, budget items for certain things, but at the end of the day, we wanted this to be a ministry outreach of every single person in this church. And if you want to get involved in that, you can um, email info at Hope Food Pantry, um, hope at vineyardrichmond.com, and that's why he's on staff. Um, to do that from that chair right there. Thank you very much, by the way. Um, and uh, so hope at uh, vineyardrichmond.com, and they will get in touch with you and tell you how that can take place. At the end of the day, we have a financial advisory board. Um, Mark McIntosh, Bruce Withers, Joe Elliott, Krista Rodas, Jack... Hoskins, um, Pastor Janice Wood, and Pastor Joe Wood are all on the financial advisory board that meets quarterly plus a couple extra days um, during the year at times um, to be responsible for the setting the budget, setting wages, uh, hiring and releasing of people, different things like that. Um, they weigh in on all that. They're a sounding board for me personally that I get to go to, and they make sure that every dime that gets spent in this church is accounted for and um, is dealt with. We wrestle with things. We bump heads at times, but at the end of the day, we walk out and we do do things together. As we do that, um, we recognize that this is what the Scripture tells us to do, that we should have overseers, we should have elders, overseers, people that are leading the prayer, the ministry, the preaching, the teaching, which is the pastoral staff, and then we should have deacons, the people that are doing the doing and leading the doing, not doing all the doing, leading all the doing. Even when I hire staff for this church, I tell them when I hire them, I'm not hiring you to do it all. I'm hiring you to build a team to do it. There needs to be no single point of failure in this church. 
Nobody, not even Joe Wood, is that important. I cannot tell you how many people I have trained to get up here and speak, study, open up the Scripture, chew it up, spit it out, and hear the Lord put a sermon on the table. Because this church is not about me. This church is about Jesus. Do I love my role? Yes, I do. But let's be honest. Some of you will look at me and say, I see you up there half the time I see everybody else up there. It's like, well, my goal is to be on three Sundays, off a Sunday, on three Sundays, off a Sunday as much as it's possible. And I'm, I'm going to continue to do that because I don't believe in celebrity. I just don't believe in it. Okay? I'm just a guy. I'm just a sinner sharing with you everything I know about finding the free bread that God is offering called grace. And I just want you to know that he's not mad at you, that he loves you. And so the goal here is that we have shepherds, servant leaders. The writer of the book of Hebrews said, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus. And look at his title, the great shepherd of the sheep. And may he equip you with every good thing for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So at the end of the day, this church is set up understanding with an, a biblical understanding of purpose and servant leadership. Purpose and servant leadership. Our calling as leaders of the Vineyard Community Church in Richmond is to lead our community of faith as together we serve our community around us, and we need to be aware of that. All that to say this. Let me sum it up. Let's call it lunch. You are here because you are you. You're not here by accident, but you are actually in this room because you are you. Maybe I should say it this way. You are important because you are you. Not because anything you have, anything you give, anything you do, but simply just because you are. You were created by God. You deserve respect. You deserve love. You were created for love. And that's important. But you are important because you are you. And there is a place for you to serve because only you can be you. I had somebody contact me this week and tell me that they just got a big promotion. And in the course of their big promotion, they were terrified because they had to go into some meetings now. And they were afraid that they might say something stupid. They might say something different. They might say something whatever. And they were scared that they would ruin this upcoming promotion. And, and this is what I had to say to them. You got the promotion because you would walk into a meeting and say what was on your mind, what was on your heart, or what you thought. Not because you were nasty or mean, but because you said it. You walked into, you got the promotion because when you were together, you had good ideas. Here's the deal. You have to be the best you that you can be. If you take this promotion and then try to be something you're not, you will have failed the people that gave you the promotion. They wanted you and your attitude and your personality on not that you, we don't need to grow and change but they wanted you in this role so stop trying to be somebody that you're not be somebody that you are because that's what got you that promotion so that's what we need to do so let me say it again there is a place for you to serve in this church because only you can be you and that's the truth there is a place for you to grow here because God says you matter. Doesn't matter how important you feel. Doesn't matter how little you feel. What matters is Jesus died for you. That's how important you are. 
But let me say this for you. If you aren't plugged into your local church, serving and being served, you are an orphan. God came to build a family, not an orphanage. Sure, you can be a Christian and you don't have to go to church, but that is not Jesus' plan. Tell him that you don't have to. Don't tell me. Okay? When we decide that we don't have to go to church or we don't have to be connected, we don't have to use our gifts to serve the church and the community, what we're saying is, I am an orphan. And Jesus did not come to build an orphanage. He came to build a family. Saying that means we matter to each other even when we disagree with each other, even when we bump heads with each other, even when it gets on social media and people see us do this with each other. I'm not the only one. Don't look at me. But I will confess, we're family. We were given the ministry of reconciliation, which means there's an expectation of reconciliation. We work it out. We don't walk out. And that's what I want to share with you today, that the leaders of this church exist to serve you. And that's the way it's going to be from here on out. I'm not interested in anything else. As I was going over this sermon this morning, the Holy Spirit gave me three words to just share today. And I don't know how they are going to hit you or how they are going to affect you, but these are the three words, okay? The first one is alone. You're in here, and for the last while, you have felt absolutely alone. And I don't just mean in this building. I mean, you feel alone in life. You feel alone at school. You feel alone at work. You feel like nobody sees you. Nobody cares about you. Nobody wants to be your friend. You're feeling all alone. And that's not what God wants for you. He wants you to be loved. He wants you to be cared for. He wants you to be accepted. And he wants you to be respected. He wants to put his arms around you and call you his own. But sometimes we fight against that because we're mad, we're bitter, we're angry, we're hurt. Or, here comes the next word, scared. We're too scared to get outside of our comfort zone. Some of you are in here and you are scared to death. Not just scared of people or not getting to be an introvert. You're scared because something's coming down the pike. You're scared of something medical, something health. You're scared of something at work. You're scared of something going on with your kids, with you, with your relationship. You're scared you're never going to see your dream come true. You're, you're scared you're never going to find that person. You're, you're just scared. You're not going to get that position at work. You're scared. And we haven't been given a spirit of fear, but one of power and love and a sound mind. And the last word that, that the Holy Spirit shared with me this morning is lost. Some of you are in here and you're lost. You're lost. Not like you're worthless. Not, not like that. You're wandering around in the dark. And you're just wanting somebody to take you by the hand and say, come sit down with us and learn and grow. But you're lost. And I want you to know that Jesus came for you. One of the biggest lies perpetrated in the world today is that God is mad. And so, you know, you need to be aware of that. And God's not mad. He doesn't like your sin. I'm not saying God can't get angry. I'm just saying he's not mad because the scripture I read says, For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son. For God so loved, that's not anger, for God so loved that he came down here and died, for God so loved that he gave, and who did he give to and who did he love? He loved sinners. He's not talking about the mountains and the dirt and the water. He's talking about sinners, the people. For God is so much in love with you and wants you to come away from your sin that he was willing to die for you. Some of you are lost. And we're at that place in a service where there are prayer people up here that would love to pray with you. If you're in here and you're facing something that scares you to death, we want to pray for you. If you're in here and you're facing something that just makes you feel lost, we want to pray with you. If you're in here and you've been in here for a long time and you feel alone, we want you to get plugged in. That's what that small group thing is all about. A serving fair is coming in a couple of weeks, but you do not have to be alone. But remember this, to some degree, it's a choice. To some degree, it is a choice. And I would encourage you to get outside of your comfort zone. I would encourage you to get outside of your convenient zone. I would encourage you to hear the Lord say to you that he is leading you forward and then give him your yes instead of all the excuses on why you can't do that or don't want to. Because I believe that God wants to do amazing things in your life. I'm not just saying that because I'm supposed to. I was not born in a Christian household, and I have seen God take me from this to this, and it has been absolutely amazing. But it came with me getting outside, it came with me saying yes, and it came with no guarantee, except that when I heard him say, come follow me, I would do it. And I want to encourage you, these people want to pray that down on your life. Let's pray. Fathers, we come before you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenges that the church is here to serve. It's not here to be served. God, that the leaders that you called out, the pastors that we see failing all around us, they're just people. And they're broken, and they allowed their brokenness to get into their leadership. And in the midst of it all, God, they they don't even want to clean the toilets anymore. They think they're too good for it. I just ask your forgiveness for them and for myself. God, I just ask your forgiveness for the times that I've thought of myself as Paul and acted like him, the times I thought of myself as Peter and would shut up, the times I thought I was John and I was more loved than anybody. Forgive me, Lord. Because we're all here together because you love us all together. Fathers, we come before you. We just invite you, Holy Spirit, to infect our hearts, infect our lives. What is it that we need to be prayed for, Lord? Speak it to us and get us out of our comfort zone and out of our chairs as we sing this closing song. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at the Vineyard, you are allowed to move up here, and these people would love to pray for you however you would like prayer for whatever it is worth. And um, we're going to sing this song together as we wrap things up this morning.